0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is uh, Thursday, uh, September the 21st, 2023. A few months ago, we had... um, one of my favorite writers on the show, Alexander Heman, he's from the great city of Sarajevo where I lived in the uh, 1980s, a very divided city, wrote a magnificent book about this um, place or exile from this place. His new novel is The World and All That It Holds. It begins and ends in Jerusalem, although this is not a book about Jerusalem. And Heman, in his own unique way, treats, I think, Jerusalem as a, as a metaphor, as a promise, as a place that we want to go to or go back to. And, of course, we never can. Uh, but Jerusalem is also a real place, a real physical place. And, of course, the most divided place on earth, the most complicated place on earth, uh, with the most divided and complicated and uh controversial history that's on the surface what about underneath the surface what lies underneath or under jerusalem my guest today has a whole book on that it's a book that came out last year under jerusalem the buried history of the world's most contested city uh and it's just coming out in paperback uh next week. Uh, Andrew Lawler is a full-time writer, one of the few full-time writers left, a very good writer, uh, the author of a number of very well-received books, and he is joining us from Asheville, North Carolina. Um, Andrew, we were chatting earlier. Uh, I said to you, this seems such an obvious book, but it's also the is always the best books that seem the most obvious, but they only become obvious once they're written. Uh, and you said that you were going backwards and forwards to Jerusalem, uh, writing some magazine stuff on Jerusalem. You were looking for this kind of book and it didn't exist. So you had to write it.
1: Yes, unfortunately, uh, I could not find the book that I ended up writing because I really wanted to understand how Jerusalem became the most contested city in the world. Now, it seems like an obvious question, uh, but I couldn't really get a clear answer until I began to explore the archaeology of the city. Then I realized that actually archaeology is the key to understanding why Jerusalem went from being uh, a pretty much of a, a backwater place, uh, maybe 150 years ago, to a place that is pretty much constantly in the headlines.
0: I'm not... Always a big fan of the French historian uh, Michel Foucault, who of course, imagines everything—or imagined he's no longer around these days. Imagined everything as as archaeology, but Foucault himself could have created uh, Jerusalem, at least in his in his mind, um, a, as a place almost purely made up of archaeology. I, I, is that right, Andrew?
1: Absolutely. I mean, until until about the 1860s, so the time of the American Civil War, Jerusalem was a very difficult place for people to get to from the West. So whether you were Jewish or Christian, uh, people didn't go to Jerusalem much after the Crusades in the you know 13th or so century. So it was an idea. Jerusalem was very much a, a Foucault kind of place because it, was, it all existed for the most part in people's minds. Uh, again, whether you were Jewish or Christian, you had an idea of Jerusalem. It was a, more of an, uh, uh, a place, a celestial place, a place that you dreamed about, a place that uh, the pilgrims came to the United States, came to America to create a new Jerusalem. But people didn't really think about going back to the old Jerusalem uh, until uh, the time of steamships.
0: Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, it's it's Foucaultian, it's Hemian, and it, it could have also come out of the imagination of somebody like Borges, the Argentinian fabulist. Tell us, though, getting beyond Foucault and Borges and Heman, what was the real history, the physical history? of jerusalem for the thousand years before it was quote unquote rediscovered by the west in the middle of the 19th century it was part of the ottoman empire it was a was it just basically a backwater
1: well it's interesting most most people tend to know a lot about jerusalem up until the time the romans destroyed it in 70 ce the common era Uh, and after that uh, other than maybe the period when the Christians came from Europe and conquered it during the Crusades for a hundred years or so, most people, particularly in the West, have very little understanding of what was going on in Jerusalem. And the truth is, there's a whole fantastic history of those 2000 years uh, beyond simply the Crusades. So yeah, the last 500 years, Jerusalem was uh, controlled solely by the Ottoman Empire. Uh, That is by the Turkic speaking people who came out of Central Asia, who conquered the remnants of really the last Roman Empire, the last of the Roman Empire, which was based in Constantinople? So, in 1453, they managed to conquer that. They turned it into their capital of Istanbul, and uh, Jerusalem was part of the, the booty that they that came with controlling the Middle Middle East uh, after that period.
0: I was in Istanbul a couple of months ago, and I went down into there. Hidden city underneath. Oh, isn't that the fantastic? The system yeah, the, the water with the, the cisterns. Yeah. It's it's astonishing. Yeah. In fact, took a whole lot of photographs. I was trying to find them for this show, and I can't find them anyway. It's always with photographs. You you have too many of them and you can't find them when you need them. Yeah. Was Jerusalem always a very junior version of Constantinople, which was seen by both Byzantine and the Ottomans as the center of the earth? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, it depends what period you're speaking of. I mean, certainly Jerusalem was not really important for Christians until uh, the time of Constantine. So around the third or fourth centuries CE, when suddenly there's an interest in building churches and commemorating sites associated with Jesus. And that's what really changed things, because before then, Jerusalem had been a, a Roman garrison town as a military town uh, and Jews were not allowed to be there. Uh, it wasn't a very small. It wasn't a very um a very notable place, and it wasn't until Constantine decreed that uh, a church should be built over the Holy Sepulchre—that is, the the traditional tomb of Jesus—that it really became an important place. So during what we call Byzantine times, so those are you know again the people who uh, are looking to Constantinople uh, or the old the, the, the what was left of the Roman Empire, uh, those people began to turn Jerusalem into a pilgrimage site so people from all over the mediterranean were coming to visit sites like the holy sepulcher um, and of course that all then changed in a very big way in the seventh century when you have muhammad uh, muhammad's followers coming out of arabia and conquering jerusalem and turning it into a, a muslim city but what's interesting is that christians remained in jerusalem and in fact they continued to build churches Uh, It was mostly a Christian city uh, almost at the time of the Crusades, uh, and that was something that wasn't well known until fairly recently. And that's something that archaeology has shown us, that in fact, during Byzantine times and into Muslim times, Jerusalem was still a very large and vibrant uh, Middle Eastern city that uh, subsisted mainly on pilgrims.
0: When I was in, I mentioned I was in Istanbul a couple of months ago. I visited Ephesus, which is supposedly where the Virgin Mary, quote unquote, uh, lived. And we visited her house. Um, I, was there ever a debate about the centrality of Jerusalem in, in the Christian story?
1: Yes, there was uh, those first couple of centuries uh, after the uh, crucifixion of Jesus. Jerusalem actually faded from importance among Christians. It really was only three or four centuries later that it became important, because early Christianity didn't consider um, didn't consider the place important. It was all about uh, preparing for the second coming of Jesus. So the idea of building a big church to commemorate a spot was really a later idea. Uh, So it really was uh, uh, something that came when Christianity became an established religion in the Roman empire. And then you start to see the monasteries, the churches, uh, the pilgrims flocking in from all over. Then it became actually a larger city than it was even during the time of Herod, during the time uh, when it was uh, primarily a Jewish city. So you really see this flowering that happened, and that actually continued uh, well beyond the arrival of the Muslims. And of course, when the Crusaders arrived, a lot of death and destruction, uh, a lot of people, particularly Muslims and Jews were killed, but the Crusaders did continue to build. uh, They continued to build monasteries, uh, churches, a whole new array of them. Uh, And then of course, when they finally were ousted by the Arabs, uh, various Arab dynasties then added to Jerusalem uh, creating all kinds of mosques and you know beautiful uh, beautiful architecture much of which still remains in the old city today and then of course the Ottomans arrive in the 16th century you know a little bit a little bit after the time of a uh, little bit around the time of Columbus say and they really turned it into uh, a show place but then after a century or so Jerusalem really fades in importance so in the 17th, 18th, and even into the 19th century, Jerusalem was really a pretty small town. It was it drew some pilgrims, mainly on their way to Mecca, Muslim pilgrims. But it, it didn't really have a purpose other than you know the occasional pilgrim coming through. It was kind of off the main trade routes. It wasn't on a river. Uh, there was no railroad that went there once the railroads were built. So it remained a pretty isolated place. You had to really want to go to Jerusalem uh in order to get there before the 1850s and 60s
0: yeah i was you answered the question i wanted to ask you about geopolitics i mean obviously constantinople istanbul straddling the bosphorus has enormous geostrategic significance jerusalem is up if not in the mountains certainly in the hills uh does it have any geostrategic significance historically as has it ever been a place that people want to capture for Military reasons.
1: Well, Jerusalem does sit in the middle of these rugged Judean hills. There's not a lot of rainfall. There's not a lot of timber. Uh, you can't grow a lot there. Um, you know, it's really the, the 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 prosperous places were always down by the Dead Sea, where there were plant balsam plantations and other things that created a lot of wealth. And then, of course, down to uh, the, the west uh, along the Mediterranean, where you had good soil. So Jerusalem was always uh, pretty much uh, an isolated place uh, economically. But nevertheless, it has been a, a place of pilgrimage for at least 3,000 years. So while it doesn't have a lot of geopolitical significance, it has always had religious significance. And that, in turn, has kept, uh, kept the wheels turning, as it were and brought people there who brought their wealth, brought their money, uh, donated money to build shrines and temples and churches and mosques and what have you. So that really has always been Jerusalem's business from very early on, is uh, catering to, uh, to, to people who are coming for religious purposes.
0: Builders. Uh, and it's always been in the business of building new buildings, new traditions. Some things uh, Andrew never changed seems to be. Very much like that today, given the complexity. Your book. You're you're from uh, you're based in Asheville, uh, North Carolina. You're about as far away from the conflict as you can get. Uh, uh, w- w- Publishers Weekly, which loved the book, called it an even-handed chronicle. One of the the most controversial aspects of uh, of Jerusalem is is who lived there. Um, we know who controlled it, whether it was the Romans or the Turks or the Crusaders. Um, but what conclusion would you make about um, the citizens, if that's the right word of Jerusalem? Were they Jews, Arabs, Christians, Palestinians, Turks? How would you describe most of them?
1: Well, the archaeology up until, say, the past 50 years has been rather obsessed with digging up palaces and major sanctuaries, Uh, particularly in Jerusalem. So it's not until recently that we had a a sense of the actual people who lived there. I mean, archaeology today, for the most part, is really interested in the common people, people who lived in uh, maybe not the big palace, but uh, what are their neighborhoods like? How big are their houses? Who has uh, disease? Who does not? What are they eating? I mean, these are all important questions in today's archaeology, uh, that Jerusalem has been a little bit slow to answer, again, because of this you know, fixation on particularly the biblical past. So, you know, if you if you ask who are the people living in Jerusalem, I think in some ways uh, the people have always been the same, uh, maybe genetically. In fact, some genetic studies that have been done throughout the Middle East, uh, particularly in the Near East, the Levant, you know, that area that includes uh, Israel and Palestinian areas and Lebanon and uh, Jordan and Syria, those areas really haven't changed in terms of the actual people who were there. Uh, and I find this really an interesting uh, piece of data that you don't get uh, so much from uh, reading the ancient text. And what that means is that the people have largely remained the same, but their beliefs have changed, their languages have changed. Mm. So uh, so the, the Jew became a Christian, became a Muslim. Uh, you know, this was, you know, obviously what happened uh, across large swaths of the Middle East. Uh, so we tend to think of people's genetic uh, genetic background, but we should remember that the Middle East, what makes it so interesting and Jerusalem, the most interesting of all, is that you have this incredible mix of cultures and languages uh, and, of course, religion and religious innovations that feed off each other. I mean, there's a lot in today's Islam that owes, uh, owes uh, its tradition to Christians and Jews and a lot of Christianity that's picked up bits and pieces from Islam and, of course, Judaism as well. So uh, that's what makes Jerusalem so interesting. It's this mix of cultures uh, so the people may not... So, uh,
0: have... Andrew, it's a, it's a fascinating observation and a reassuring one for, I guess, humanists and uh, globalists, people who who are not wedded to a particular identity. When people went from being a Christian to a Jew to a Muslim, were they mostly making a choice themselves or was it usually under the threat of the sword?
1: Hmm. Well, again, I think it, it depends on what period you're talking about. For example, when the Muslims arrived in the 7th century, uh, there is no evidence of forced conversion. In fact, in the early years of Islam, uh, there actually was a tendency not to want people to convert because the, the ruling class were, uh, were Muslims uh, and those who were not part of the ruling class were not Muslims. And there were many who didn't want to change that. But over time that did alter itself. But, you know, it's fascinating to me that Jerusalem, this is one of those new findings from recent archeology span by primarily uh, Jewish archeologists in Israel is that uh, early Jerusalem, early Muslim Jerusalem did have uh, so many Christians uh, who did not convert. And in fact, the Christian population uh, remained stable or in fact might've grown some. So uh, I don't think that forced conversion was something that ever really happened much in a big way in Jerusalem. Uh, There was uh, certainly plenty of times when an enemy would come in and conquer the city and destroy it. That happened. The Babylonians did that when it was under Jewish control or Judean control back in the 5th century BCE. But uh, for the most part, I think people just gradually begin to pick up the tradition and the ruling class has a lot of influence so you might decide that it you know it might be good for your uh, for your children if you were to convert or maybe one of your children converts and you don't, but then their children become whatever the the new uh, voguish religion is. And I think these things evolve more than somebody knocking on your door saying either you convert or you die.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's again a a very important and reassuring observation, Andrew in our age where we treat being a jew or a muslim or a christian in in absolute terms and of course there are also many heresies many many fragmentations of the church many debates alawites lots of groups somewhere caught between judaism and islam so even the the idea of there being a clean distinctions between the three dominant religions and, and various other religious offshoots I, I think is historically inaccurate isn't it
1: yes and it's a, actually it's a new idea and this is really a 19th and 20th century idea uh, for example in Jerusalem the the governor of Jerusalem during Ottoman times was invariably a uh, a well-placed uh, Ottoman Sultan you know somebody or a, a um, an effendi uh, a noble person who was given the job of overseeing Jerusalem because it was a a sacred place. It was a very important job. But that ruler's, that governor's true job was to keep the Christians from going at each other's throats. Uh, That's a time when, for the most part, Jews and Muslims uh, got along, relatively speaking, whereas the Christian sects were constantly fighting with with one another, uh, often quite violently. The Holy Sepulcher was often the site of, uh, of fights and fisticuffs, uh, and even uh, worse violence than that. So
0: is this so, mostly a, a, a Catholic Eastern Orthodox division oh, or oh, Protestant no, Catholic or all of it?
1: You can slice it any way you want. I, I loved I, I was visiting once and a, 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 an Armenian archimandrite, like a bishop, was giving me a tour of the Holy Sepulchre. And he took me through the Armenian area because everything is very clearly delineated. Who gets what? Who controls what within this complex. And he walked over to a column and he said, do you see this mark? And I looked, I couldn't. And he said, look there. And there was a little scratch right in the center of this column. He said, this side Armenian, that side Greek. Mm. Uh, And you could really feel like, don't try and take an inch of that. So really the Christians have been the real troublemakers in in, uh, in Jerusalem. They were until the middle of the 19th century. And that's when things began to change. So today we understand Jerusalem through a lens that's actually only a century or so old. But you go back a ways and for a thousand years, it was the Christians who were uh, were making the headlines.
0: And of course, it's a European colonial kind of Christianity. We're talking with Andrew Lawler, the author of a, of a wonderful, it's not a new book. It's just coming out in paperback, came out last year, Under Jerusalem, We spent the first half, Andrew, doing exactly what I didn't want to do, which is talking about the surface. Now we've got to get underground. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to get under the surface of of Jerusalem, and we're going to get underneath the city and talk to Andrew about its real truth, its subterranean truth. So don't go away, anyone. I just want to also remind everyone that this show is brought to us by Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, uh and we're going to run a short ad for liberties and then we'll be back with andrew lawler to get under the surface get to the real jerusalem beyond the news the noise there is nuance insight liberties it's not just a journal of ideas it's a meteor of intelligent substance it's the place to be for engaged citizens politics opinion substance liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought a quarterly of urgency of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. You can check out more about Liberties and subscribe at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking with Andrew Lawler, the author of Under Jerusalem. Andrew, um, do we need to get under the city to learn about it? The assumption is that if you dig underneath, if you, get, if you become an archaeologist, you get to the truth. Uh, but my sense is that you're too sophisticated for that. Uh, if we get under Jerusalem, are we getting away from the truth? What's, what's the truth about all this untruth?
1: Well, Andrew, what is truth? This is a big question. Isn't that uh, the question that Jesus uh, said to would pose to Pilate? Uh, certainly, you can come to, uh, to many new truths by digging under Jerusalem. But the, those digs have in turn let loose, uh, I would say, uh, enormous powers and energies that have created the contested city that we have today. Uh, so let me explain that. Archaeology is really a pretty new discipline. It's only in the past century that it's become something you can actually go and study. And when the first archaeology was done in Jerusalem, it was done by people who were more treasure hunters uh, or religious enthusiasts. And these were Europeans primarily who came to Jerusalem looking for one thing and one thing only—that is, the biblical past. They walked the streets of Jerusalem, and to them, it was just yet another Middle Eastern city with filled mostly with Muslims, with Christians as well, uh, and some Jews. But it was not a—it uh, was not the Jerusalem of their Sunday school. That's what they were seeking. They wanted to go and find what lay beneath the city to see if they could unearth the fantastic remains of Solomon's time, uh, or that of King David uh, and that of Herod, which for the most part was
0: not visible. So uh, they like were that. digging for their childhood, which exactly. Uh, yes. Freud, yes. Freud would have uh, imagined and wouldn't have been surprised by.
1: And and what's interesting is that for the the local Jews and Muslims were really perplexed by this strange behavior. I can
0: imagine.
1: <laughs> you know, for them, uh, and it's it's true uh, for Muslims uh, in Jerusalem today. I've talked to many, and they don't understand this idea of digging for your past because they say, "But your past is is the mosque you go to. It's your traditions. It's the food you eat. It's the the building you live in. Uh, it's not." What's dead and gone? That's underneath the surface. So, so there's a real cultural clash that happened when Westerners arrived, looking for what they perceived as their heritage beneath a city that was uh, a very different place—a city that was primarily an Arab city. When I say Arab, uh, you had. Uh, Of course, Christians as well as Muslims who were Arab. And you also had Jews who, for the most part, were were speaking Arabic then. So it was a very different culture that these Europeans and also Americans were walking into. Uh, And they had very little interest in that world. They wanted to get back to that Bible of their childhood.
0: So we had the first wave who were the treasure seekers. Then the academic archaeologists showed up, Andrew. Well, they did, uh, bit by bit. And one of the big questions that
1: was asked in the late uh, 1800s was, where's the city of David? Uh, now, we all know from the, the, the biblical text that uh, David conquered Jerusalem from the Jebusites. He made it the capital. And then his son Solomon turned Jerusalem into a, a, a large, glittering city that was the center of, uh, of a short-lived but um, you know, very rich empire. I mean Solomon is a byword for wealth, so they were very interested uh, in actually digging for this period and finding uh, the the crystal floor that's mentioned in to have been in Solomon's palace. It drew people like the Queen of Sheba from far away, and when they dug, uh, they didn't find any of this, and this is very perplexing. In fact, it wasn't even clear where the ancient Jerusalem. Uh, had sat. And finally, they were able to determine through just finding bits of pottery that that the old city of Jerusalem, not the old city that we know today that you can walk around that's uh, surrounded by Ottoman-era walls, but a little peninsula that sticks out south of the city's Acropolis or Temple Mount, Haram al-Sharif, as the, as the Arabs call it, uh, that's where the ancient Jerusalem was. But still, they could not find any clear, large remains of any building from the period of David and Solomon. And that still remains one of the great mysteries of uh, Jerusalem's past today.
0: But would it be fair to say, Andrew, that in the 19th century, at least, none of these archaeologists were digging for nationalist reasons. They weren't digging to prove that this was a Jewish city or an Arab city or a, um, a, a Jerusalem city, a Palestinian city. Uh, that nationalism itself, uh, perhaps as a curse or perhaps as as something less bad, um, only impacted the, the city in the beginning of the 20th century, first with Zionism and then later all the reactions to Zionism.
1: Well, actually, nationalism is, I think, what spurred uh archaeology and which in turn spurred the desire among european colonial powers to control jerusalem so the first right. french archaeologist for example you know he was a friend of the emperors uh he was a very well-placed person who had the money and and, uh, pol- and political connections to get a dig permit so and then the the british were threatened by the french coming into jerusalem and searching for that biblical past. so they set up a society so actually what you had was a I, I would liken it to the space race of the 1960s that you had, mm-hmm. uh you know, like you have the Soviet Union, the United States, who can get to the moon first. It was similar. You had the French and the British competing to see who could find the treasures of Solomon, who could find the Ark of the Covenant, who could find these fantastic artifacts presumed to lie underground and put them in their museums uh, to show off. Uh, their national spirit. Uh, So the British Museum and the Louvre were competing. They were competing with one another. And then the Germans got involved. uh, They began to dig and the Russians were involved. Uh, And then the Americans came in a little bit later. uh, But for the most part, this really was an effort by European colonial empires to not just to to find the biblical past, but to control what they saw as a very strategic city because Jerusalem sat in the middle of the Ottoman Empire. And by the late 19th century, the Ottoman Empire was beginning to fray at the end. Right, and
0: that, and of course, in, in parallel, perhaps the reality above ground was enormous European rivalry to both control the fate of the Ottoman state, ally with it. There were wars, the, the Crimean War, the various Balkan Wars, uh, the, the, the collapse of Ottoman power in, in Europe, Sarajevo, and so on. So... This was all bound up in a, in a broader kind of colonial uh, in, endeavor. So, you know, there's the old story of the Elgin marbles uh, being carted off from Athens back to uh, back to London with the French and the English and the Germans. Did they cart off most of the treasure they dug up underground and took it back to their museums in Berlin and Paris and London? Well, the, the
1: the shocking truth was that there really wasn't much to find in Jerusalem. Remember, <laughs> uh, and, and there was there was a British archaeologist who who warned everybody. said, "Look, guys, remember that uh, that you know there's a Jewish taboo on images, so you're not going to find the kind of uh, massive statues coming out of Mesopotamia." Or there was anything. no
0: Pompeii,
1: no right. Ephesus, right, right. So, so you know, in fact, there were there were some remains, but it was very, very modest. And remember, Jerusalem was never as wealthy as, as a Memphis, you know, the capital of Egypt, or a Nippur or an Ur in Mesopotamia or a Nineveh, or, you know, it was never a, a, a huge city uh, until much later. So there really wasn't mu- that much defined. That's the great irony. But for archaeologists, it turned out to be a good thing because they were able to chart using pottery and um. You know, really using some of the more modern methods, stratigraphic methods, they were able to track Jerusalem's history in a way that uh, kept them from focusing on finding those statues, which didn't exist. Now that so didn't we keep
0: people to... looking.
1: That did not keep people from looking for, say, the Ark of the Covenant, but
0: that's another story. <laughs> well, and they probably still are looking for that one. No, they uh, absolutely are still looking for it, I assure you, yes. Uh, so, Andrew, we come to... The birth of Zionism. How did this change? Of course, as at the end of the First World War, the British occupied um, Jerusalem, Palestine. Uh, the Balfour Declaration was signed. Uh, Herzl articulated his vision for a Jewish state in in, in the Middle East. How did that change uh, underneath? Jerusalem? How did that change uh, the world that you're studying and you write about in your book?
1: Well, in fact, I think it was the search for what was underneath Jerusalem that helped to light the fire under Zionism and also encourage the Balfour Declaration. Um, and let me explain. So all of these digs that were going on in the 1860s and 70s and 80s and 90s they were getting a lot of publicity. I mean, I mentioned the space race, remember how much ink was spilled over uh, the race to the moon? Well, it was similar. Uh, European newspapers and American newspapers were covering breathlessly uh, the digs that were happening in Jerusalem. And this inspired a lot of European Jews who said, wait a second, why are we allowing the Christians to go dig up what is really our heritage? Um, the Christians have been focused on what they call the Old Testament. Uh, Jews were saying, wait a second, you know, this is our past, not your past. So Jews and Christians began to compete in Jerusalem. And I think it really uh, created a, 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 it was a way for Herzl and his followers, because Herzl actually went to some archaeology digs while he was in Jerusalem. Uh, I think it really gave them uh, a, a visceral way to interest people in creating a Jewish state. So it was the, it was these digs which inspired Zionists to, to really focus on, on Jerusalem and Israel. And remember, Jerusalem was seen as by many uh, European Jews at the time as a very, you know, dirty, superstitious place. The idea was, well, we'll create a a state, but, you know, around Tel Aviv and that area, uh, we want to, create a socialist state, and Jerusalem just did was not in line with a lot of uh, Zionist thinking from the, the turn of the century. So it really was these digs, I think, that, that inspired people to reconsider Jerusalem as a place to turn into the center of a Jewish homeland.
0: We've done so many shows on Israel, probably too many, Um, Israel-Palestine, and the old argument amongst uh, hardcore Zionists is that the Jews have been living there ever since the beginning of time. In these digs, were they looking for proof of their ethnic uh, communities? Were they looking for proof that the Jews had been there since time immemorial? Or were they looking for Jewish artifacts? Well, archaeology has always been wrapped
1: up with the Western search for an identity uh, that's true in the United States where there are digs uh, for example I grew up near near Jamestown the first uh, the first permanent settlement in the new world uh, right and you wrote a book about it you wrote, uh, uh, actually, yeah. wrote a, actually that that's a book about the the first attempt
0: uh, which right. it didn't
1: take uh, but yes we'll uh, secret sort of Token. so you're
0: all too familiar with that side of American history.
1: And and so, and that's a great example, because I think uh, archaeologists are always, you know, uh, always bring with them who they are and their identity and what they're searching for. So uh, this was also true in Jerusalem, that people were arriving, not necessarily thinking they wanted to prove something, but you find what you're looking for. uh, Yeah. Meaning, you know, if you're looking for it, it, you're going to find, for example, uh, and, uh, an Israeli archaeologist, very distinguished. I knew her quite well. She's passed away, Lot Mazar. She found a building that she declared to be the Palace of David. Now, there's been a lot of scholarly criticism by Israeli archaeologists, as well as others, saying the data simply doesn't support that. But she was very gung-ho. Although she wasn't a religious person, she was really gung-ho on the Old Testament and the Bible being a, a kind of a guidebook. Um, so I think it's, it's complicated, but there's no doubt that in Jerusalem, anytime you dig, you are committing a political act. There's just no way around that. And that's what makes it so fascinating that when you go underground, what you see has been created by people who had all kinds of agendas. And today there are all kinds of uh, tourist venues that you can visit that are a result of these archaeological digs that, again, um, are really tied in with the politics of the moment.
0: Yeah, and I'm guessing people show up, Jews from Brooklyn or anti-Zionists from Brooklyn, and they're trying to to make their point. Now, on the other hand, of course, um, Andrew, you had, for the most part, a large Arab community that you said has been living in Jerusalem since the beginning of time, whose existence in the city was being threatened by these new Maybe they were colonialists. Maybe they were something else. Zionist Jews from Europe fleeing persecution. How did all this change the view of Muslim Arabs of underneath Jerusalem? I'm guessing that as this fight with the Zionists intensified, um, they began to get more and more interested in what lay underneath Jerusalem. Is that true? Well,
1: not really. um, Because, you know, remember, Muslims have a very different viewpoint uh, when it comes to their history. And I think the Muslims who had lived in Jerusalem for generations viewed it as uh, it was a living tradition. And it's... So there was a period when the Mm -hmm. British were running Jerusalem where they had an archaeology and heritage department. And it's interesting, I went back and and I looked at the papers and what papers were published, what were their topics. And it seems that most of the Jewish archaeologists where they were European, they were focused on biblical times, uh, digging down and finding stuff. Whereas the the Muslims almost invariably, uh, and the Christians as well, we're focused on on heritage, on uh, more current day, uh, preserving buildings, uh, you know, making sure that a mosque is accessible, uh, you know, fixing up a church. Uh, so it's very, very different approaches to the past, and I think what we have today is a reflection of that. Now, partly because Palestinians are not allowed to dig in Jerusalem, it's under uh, Israeli control. Oh, they not. Surprise, no surprise to Well, no, it's a, you have to get a dig permit uh, and that has to come from the Israeli Antiquities Authority, which is an Israeli organization. Um, So, and Palestinians are are not, not part of those teams. So uh, Jerusalem is, is a, a hot button issue because the, anytime you dig there, you're digging for, you're digging the past and the past is what everybody is fighting over in Jerusalem to say, no, we were here longer. Um, you know, we built this first, Uh, I mean, you know, you go through it, it's just, it it is, uh, people will use the finds of archaeology to prove their point, so you'll find Palestinians using the finds made by uh, Israeli Jewish archaeologists to make a point, Um, you know, the classic example is, there is no archaeological evidence of a Jewish temple on the Temple Mount, and when I give this, when I talk about this at synagogues, there's always this dead silence. And yeah, you know, because that's famously what, what, Arab, uh, what uh, Arafat, Yasser Arafat said. And actually he's technically correct. There is no archeological evidence for a Jewish temple on the Temple Mount. Now he's being a little disingenuous because we do know that there uh, is plenty of uh, architectural evidence, archeological evidence of uh, the Jewish temple complex. The temple being only one of many buildings. So you know, there's an example where archeological finds can be used and twisted in turn to suit your political needs, whatever they happen to be today.
0: Well, let me rephrase the question, um, Andrew. As Jerusalem now is dramatically changing, you talked about building uh, during the Crusades and in historical times. Now, of course, it's increasingly becoming a Jewish city. And that's enormously controversial. Has the old Arab Jerusalem, is that increasingly being turned into an underground place? Well, certainly uh, in Silwan.
1: So remember, I mentioned the digs that were done uh, to search for the old city of Jerusalem, the old, old city, uh, that little peninsula sticking south of the Temple Mount. Uh, That is primarily and has been for more than a century, a, a, a largely Arab neighborhood. Uh, and now there is a, a, a right-wing group that has uh, a lot of money and political pull that has been digging an enormous subway-sized tunnel beneath this primarily Arab neighborhood, called Silwan. And they're unearthing a pilgrimage street, a street that uh, it's believed uh, pilgrims and others would have used in Jerusalem around the time of Jesus. And in order to access it, they had to dig deep underground and this tunneling has caused all kinds of trouble. Uh, people living above complain that their foundations are cracking. Uh, that that it, it's a it's a kind of, you know, in their view, a kind of colonialism to be having people digging in your basement without your authority. And so it's been you know highly controversial. But it has now turned into uh, what is sure to be one of Jerusalem's main uh, uh, tourist sites uh, for many decades to come. So you have this tension above and below, but they're both related. What's below and above are so connected. That's what I found, that if you understand what's going on below the ground in Jerusalem, then you have a pretty good insight into what's happening above.
0: It's a fascinating story, Andrew. I'm thrilled that you wrote the book. I think it's such an important subject and such a a brilliant book, and and, and you present it in such an articulate way. Finally, what about everything you've learned in terms of trying to address the current situation it doesn't seem as if anything ever will get better there and the two sides or the two maybe more than two sides are Mm -hmm. increasingly divided in your work in your research in the many times you've been to jerusalem what have you learned given your historical perspective and the, the kinds of really important bracing historical truths that you present. How how can this help us get beyond the enormous divisions in in Jerusalem today?
1: One of the reasons I love uh, writing about history and archaeology is that it does give you a perspective that's very hard to get when I pick up the New York Times uh, in the morning. Uh, I do still get a print copy, old-fashioned in that way. And what I've seen in Jerusalem is that Despite the way that archaeology can be used, often quite cynically, uh, for political or religious purposes, this goes on all the time, it's been going on for more than a century, nevertheless, that data that these archaeologists are gathering remains in the museums, it remains in journals, it remains debated in the scholarly community among academics and academics around the world, not just in Israel or in the Palestinian areas. It's something that uh, uh, people continue to argue over and not the politics or the religion, but the data. So I do have a very long-term feel. I I have have an optimism that this data someday can be used to see Jerusalem for what it truly is. And that is a city that has been uh, controlled and altered by multiple peoples over millennia. and that if we leave out one piece of that, then we don't have the full fabric. It's like pulling the, the yarn out of a scarf. you know, you want it, you want it all intact. So I hope that in the years and decades to come, people can uh, realize that the Byzantine period or the early bronze is just as interesting and valuable as the biblical era. Uh, that may be optimistic, but, I think that if we can see that Jerusalem is a result of all of these cultures and peoples coming together, then we actually could, um, could imagine a city that is truly a city of peace.
0: Sounds very reasonable, Andrew. You seem very reasonable, but I'm not confident that's going to convince anyone, certainly the, the participants, the, the actors in this conflict.
1: Well, that's because when you're acting in a conflict, it's very hard to, to take that. Uh, I have the luxury of taking that long perspective. Uh, there are many people who don't, and I recognize that's my privilege to be able to say, "Yeah, but in a hundred years it might change." Um, obviously, there are people suffering now on all sides of the debate, but I think it's it's important for uh, for journalists and for writers to to find ways to see beyond the the box that that we get stuck in uh, when we discuss a, a conflict as complicated and as emotional as this.
0: And, you know, then maybe we can leave a trail of breadcrumbs for the people who come after. So not get in the box, Andrew, get underneath the box. That's the message, right? Absolutely.